we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Progressive is America's number one motorcycle insurer, so we understand motorcycles. No, really, we have a bike translator. Okay, so this bike feels like he's capable of a little more than just trips to the convenience store. Oh, also, he wants to let you know that you can buy a gallon of ice cream instead of a pint every time. (laughs) Those are his words. So he said roughly like, blink the last wheel. It doesn't really translate, but the way he said it was super funny. (laughs) Get 24-7 roadside assistance with Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Roadside assistance subject to policy terms and limits and may require comprehensive coverage. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to I'ma Let You Finish listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash I'ma Let You, I-M-M-A-L-E-T-U. That's betterhelp.com slash I'm a let you, I-M-M-A-L-E-T-U. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. What's up, everybody? It's I'm a let you finish with Court and Amy on the Pantheon Podcast Network is show number 114, and we have a special guest today. It is a conversation with the man who, pretty legendary, has a great story to tell. <laughs> Just go has, with it, all right? Has, Just roll has, with it. <laughs> has, has seen some things, has done some things, has been a session studio drummer for Samantha Fox. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> it is... Hugo Burnham from Gang of Four. Yeah, only Courtney could lead with Samantha Fox and no, then work your way. Because that, I, when I read everything and think about Gang of Four, it's like, yes, I would really think that person would end up being a session drummer for Samantha Fox, who is the complete opposite of everything. Well, that is absolutely true, and that there is a fun story behind it. Um, if I may. Please. <laughs> I, uh, after I'd left Gang of Four, I was doing some sort of uh, trying to do session work, but I'm really not that good a drummer to be able to just go in and read charts and do all that sort of thing. And I, I actually joined a band for a while called Illustrated Man with uh, 
Rob Dean, the guitar player from Japan, who remains a dear friend, um, and Roger Mason, who had been playing with Gary Newman and with The Models, Australian band, um, and an, an Australian bass player called Phil. And um, after that, I was I sort of trans transitioned myself, uh, as it were, over to tour management and management. And I was uh, looking after Shriekback. Um, oh, yeah. Time, as well as working with my brother, Jolyon, um, who had also gone into management through tour management. I was looking after Neil Arthur from Blamange and Julian Cope. But anyway, um, I got a call um, from, I can't remember who it was, but it was basically uh, Public Image Management who said, hey, uh, we're, we're going to be on top of the pops next Thursday. Um, would you like to be on? And it's like, would I? <laughs> so it, it was Rise um, and uh, the one that Ginger Baker actually recorded. But uh, Bruce Smith, who then stayed with the band, and I were both drumming on top of the pops for Public Image. And it was wonderful. I have a small suspicion they called me originally, not knowing who I was, but they called mm -hmm. Shriekback Management because I think they probably wanted Martin Barker originally. <laughs> <laughs> but I stole but it was alphabetical. They went down the list. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 yeah very good. I stole <laughs> it from under him, and I was fabulous. And then a week later, I got a call from a friend who'd uh, run the little studio that we used to write and rehearse in, um, who had just uh, finished writing and producing most of Samantha Fox's first album. And he said, oh, I saw you on the, there with Public Image, brilliant, which in a, itself is a whole thing because Gang of Four got kicked off Top of the Pop some years before that. Um, and he said, I've got another really cool one for you. <laughs> and he said, it's Samantha Fox. And I just went, Public image to Samantha Fox within three weeks. <laughs> I'm in. I am in. Right. It was great fun because um, <clears throat> I actually spent probably the next six months working with her, doing TV shows, going to Europe. Um, they treated me very well. She was lovely and charming. And her dad, um, an old, you know, sort of bruiser, cab driver, guy, always paid me on time and they paid me properly. And that was highly unusual. We love um, that. So – that was it, yeah. And then I did – after that, I was on top of the pops again with ABC with their <gasps> second album. Wait, stop. <laughs> Discuss. Okay, so their second album, that was then, but this is now. My now I, one of my favorite songs ever. And when I worked at the Baby Doll Lounge as a bartender, I always have to stress that, as a bartender, I took over the jukebox because I couldn't listen to Flashdance one more fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a whole contingent of girls who danced at the Baby Doll who were like kind of like downtown kind of chicks. Their boyfriends yeah. were musicians, so somebody had to have a job, and so they yeah, were strippers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took over the jukebox, and that was then, this is that, I had that thing on repeat. I used to play – and. You have to yeah. be a certain kind of dancer to dance to that. Yeah, song. yeah. Well, we all know what a stripper does with her asshole before she goes to work. Uh, she says <laughs> goodbye to him. Drops him off at band practice. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Uh, our original manager, Rob War, who'd left us and gone to work for EMI and then became a um, ABC's manager. I can't remember which way around it was, but uh, they had lost David Palmer. It was just down to the the other three with the band now. And they wanted somebody to drum uh, on top of the pops. And the it started with the video for That Was Zen, But This Is Now, all of which can be found on YouTube. And uh, so I turned up to do it, and they were like, they just, they just, wow, you really learned the song. You're not just 
you know, <laughs> it's important to look fabulous when you're on mm-hmm. TV. Yeah. Um, and I did, again. <laughs> and it's it's fabulous or, look fabulous? Or? Yeah, especially yeah, Top of the Pops. Got, literally got, everybody got, in the UK watched it. Everyone yeah, watched oh, Top absolutely. of the Pops. It was appointment yeah, I mean, television. Absolutely. <laughs> Families, it was, it was part of the whole zeitgeist at the time. Um, and I went on with them. I went to Australia and, and Japan. Um, doing again, doing TV shows and stuff. And uh, um, <laughs> when we did uh, American Bandstand, uh, it was the week of Christmas, I think that year. Um, he, you know, he comes out and says hello to everybody. You know, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want? And then he says, "What about you back there?" And of course, the three main bands. He's just the fucking drummer. Ignore him. <laughs> right. um, he said, "What would you like for Christmas?" And I said. Oh, I'd like that jacket of Mark's, which was some Issy Miyake thing that cost a fortune. <laughs> Cracked everybody up. So anyway, um, and what, there was there was another story about, oh, yes, when we did Top of the Pops the first time, there's a band who weren't very big in the States, a, a, a staple of the English music scene for years, a band called Status Quo. No, I know, I, I know them, yeah. of, but have never heard them. But you know, I know of. Yeah, well, they were they were heads down, no nonsense, mindless boogie. I mean, they were fantastic. Are they pictures Real, of Matchstick Men? Is that, that them? That, yeah, that was their very early pop hit, and then they okay. they sort of got heavier and more boogified. And uh, they had quite a reputation um, uh, for partying. So anyway, we went into their dressing room. Hello, 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 and you know, the three boys in ABC were just all quite excited. And you know, I was right into the corner there with the. Uh, Anyway, participating. And I said, oh, who are you then? I, I'm, I'm Hugo. He said, well, what do you do? I'm the drummer. He said, oh, you're D then. <laughs> D. Okay, you had to be there. Anyway, <laughs> I had a lot of fun pretending to, uh, miming drumming with some really fun artists. And uh, it kept my mortgage going at the time. Are any of those shows live at all? They're all... I know Dick Clark is live because we well, grew up what, with that one. Yeah, I mean, it's not live, Dick Clark. I know that. It went through various stages with Top of the Pops. I think they tried it live. There were, there were a lot of musicians' union rules. Like, you couldn't just play the record and mind it. You had to officially go and re-record the track so that, you you know, you'd get, be paid by the union and all that sort of thing. Um, and that was a whole part of the story of why Gang of Four got kicked off. Um, but, yeah, you know, you played along. It was fun. How is it that some people got to perform live on that show? Because there are some performances where people did get to perform live on Top of the Pops. I, know I think it was, it was rare, just, just to, a few people. Yeah, I think it was more to do with the timing of what they were trying to do production-wise, that they they tried it for a while or once or twice. But it was always, they couldn't control it. And uh, which is why we got kicked off, because when... Um, Right after we signed to EMI, we put out that Homie's a Tourist for our first single. You know, the, the line is, and the rubbers you hide in your top left pocket. Oh, yeah. They'd right, asked, right. Us, <laughs> they'd asked us to be on, and we had this. We were in Wales um, rehearsing before we recorded entertainment at this old sort of hippie farmhouse. And, we, you know, we had a long debate about whether we should be on top of the pops or not. And our A&R guy, Chris Briggs, and our manager, Rob War were being very patient, you know, in their heads just going, what the fuck are you doing? We have to do this. Right. Um, but, you know, <laughs> so anyway, we and, that, and they said, well, we can't have you say the word rubbers. You need to change that. And we thought, well, okay, let's be pragmatic about it. So we said, yep, we'll go and re-record it. We'll say rubbish. Uh, bugger, that ruined the story. We'll say packets. Mm-hmm. Right. We did. We went there. They decided they 
for some reason didn't like us very much. And, oh, you've got to change it to rubbish. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, then it won't sound like we made you change it. And they said, yeah, but that completely changes the meaning. And so we stood our ground. And as John King has said a number of times, we never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> that, 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 and we, we really lost EMI records over that. Um, wow. Because they really saw us as being a big coming thing and walking off to the pots to their promotions department. That was akin to cutting your own arm off. But you uh, did Ogre Whistle Test, right? Was that yeah, like a yeah, looser yeah. show? Was that a looser show? Yeah, that was the late night sort of rock show, you know. Okay. So you could, you know, I remember so vividly as a young punk rocker in San Francisco, that whole controversy about the rubbers and the rubbish thing. Cause you know, at the time we would, you know, we had heard of you guys and you rushed down the tower records to get the import because it was only available on import at at that point. And it was just such, it was, it really like made an impact in terms of like controversy and it was like a big deal thing. And it's so obviously now it's like nothing. It's like absolutely nothing. Back then, it was a terrible thing. Now, it's like parents are throwing condoms at their kids when they go out. (laughs) Like, please use this. Please (laughs) use this. I'm begging of you. I just want to talk a little bit. Well, you know, I guess talk about Gang of Four because there's this book that just came out, which I tried to get off my in my library, but they don't have it yet. Uh, the No Machos or Pop Stars, which is about the scene in Leeds. And I think for a lot of us, or I'll speak for myself, we always associated everything with music and punk with London. I mean, we were just sort of, yeah. everything was centered around London. And you are not from London. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, so the band's hometown was Leeds, although three of us were all from southeast London. Uh, we grew up in Kent. We went to public school there. Public, of course, meaning private. Um, I went to one place in Kent, uh, and John and Andrew and half of the Mekons all went to high school at another town probably 12 miles away from where i did even though i didn't know them um but we all gathered in leeds they were all studying fine art i was doing english and theater um there were, oh i mean it's you know there was so much going on in manchester and liverpool and leeds um and birmingham i mean there was a lot going on but yeah london was the genesis of everything so i understand that um was there a different kind of mentality that you guys brought? Because, you know, being New Yorkers, you know, New Yorkers think that we're the center of the world and we're obviously not. But, you know, we did yeah. invent punk rock, obviously. But, well, um, I mean, <laughs> things spread far more quickly there, obviously, because you can have something in New York that's going for two or three years before Cleveland gets here about it. Or more to the point that until New York hear that Cleveland are doing it, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it, it you can be up and down the country in four hours in England, five Um or four, the way we drove, um, <laughs> and um, it, it it moved faster. Um, the book is not, yeah, it's actually being released. I think the release date, the publication date, excuse me, in the states is n- next week sometime because the author Gavin Butts, who's been working on this for years, um, we all interviewed some time ago, and I thought, oh, yeah, it's never going to come out, and then suddenly it's out. Um, he's doing a um, a talk. Uh, in New York, he's some interview thing with the book release that I'm actually going to drive down for next week to be at with him. And then in, in another two and a half, three weeks, I'm actually flying to England because uh, there's a big event in Leeds. Um, there's a gig with Mekon 77, the original lineup, and Scritti Politti. <gasps> 
at we um, just talked about Scritty Pility. Oh my god. And we go deep in the catalog. We're not yeah. just perfect way. All right. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, like, I mean, Bonami and Anami are like, uh, oh. Okay. So they're doing a gig at the big pub venue, you know, the major <laughs> venue in Leeds, which is just a big pub. Right. So with the release, and there's a release party. So I'm flying into London. I take the train, assuming the buggers are running, um, to Bath, where John king lives now and we i'll spend the night there we'll hang out and then we'll drive up to leeds the next day and both be at the event i'm djing it john says i'm not going to do anything i just want to be there <laughs> <laughs> although he's then doing an event with the author in london a week or so later um so it, it's great i've read it it's 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 a very thoroughly well-written thoroughly researched book um that's not just a pop tome at all it's it's really good um, well, maybe when you're, in, I have to send you my number because so you were literally five blocks. Uh, he was at the Pet Shop Boys show too, the same oh one we God, were that at. Was so good, oh, that was so good. Did you go question. to see Pet Shop Boys or New Order? Which who would you go to see? Who would you go to see? Well, I went to see them both. I've never seen Pet Shop Boys. <gasps> you me. and Courtney broke your Pet Shop Boys cherry on the same me. night. That's that exciting. Yeah, love them number five. Number five for me. I mean, sort of. Fun. I mean, I was sort of nominally New Order's A and R man when I was at Quest Records in Los Angeles because they were they Quincy had signed them. So, you know, <laughs> um, but and I'd I'd known them when they were war, when they were Warsaw pre Joy Division. They opened for us once, if not twice. So, known them a long time. Hooky and I are old and good friends, um, which they are not with him anymore. <laughs> I was going to say it's such good friends that he wasn't on the tour. Oh no! I mean, no, he and I are friends. They, right. They had- they had a, they had a most awful breakup, but you know, par for the course in this business. Um, I actually enjoyed Pet Shop Boys more um, because live the best part of New Order for me is Stephen the drummer because he's great to phenomenal, watch. Phenomenal, phenomenal drummer. When my seats were, there was this huge lighting gantry literally between me and Stephen, so I just had to look at the screen and I, you know, so that that was a little disappointing, but. Uh, had a fabulous dinner before that, about 10 minutes. Where? Where'd oh, you go? I know you're going to say, I can't remember. It's a place that just opened fairly recently. It's like a real old school Brooklyn restaurant with this fabulous bar upstairs. Oh, God, I can't remember. I'm oh, Gage and Tolner? Yes. Yes, Gage and Tolner. Fabulous. Gage, Gage and Tolner has been around since the 1800s, but that's okay. No, no, but it, but it, it, no, <laughs> I know. It, it, it was closed for a very long time. And they it was always the place when you were going out with your grandmother, right? You would go to Gage and Tolner because there was something for everybody, and all the waiters had little hatch marks, like little stripes for how long they had been working there. Wow. And they had the gas Do they still have the gas lanterns? It looks like it, even though they're Yeah, not- yeah. But you it, know that that was a Wendy's. They turn, remember Courtney when that the mm-hmm. Fulton Mall went to shit and they mm-hmm. sold the building. It was a whiz. It was the whiz for a while. The, yeah, and then they turned it into a yeah. It's pathetic. I used to and they turned it into fun fact. Yeah, <laughs> and it was an Arby's or a Wendy's, but because the building is landmark, so it was like a Wendy's with gas lighting inside. <laughs> um, well, recently restored and fabulous. I will go back there. But, I, have uh, a, yeah. I have a question oh, yeah. for you. So, <laughs> Gang of Four, you guys are really important in the punk scene. What do you think your relevance in place is in the history of the punk scene? Oh, God. <laughs> like, oh, really? And go. <laughs> um, 
I always prefer other people to say these things. I mean, okay, we're very lucky because we didn't start the thing. We were, you know, we started during the punk times. We sort of became, started coming out through uh, in the period they called post-punk because it wasn't all about the zits and the spiky hair so much for us. Um, And just because we were just a bit more sort of arty and serious, really. And which is not in any way to disparage all the great early punk stuff that was just fantastic. I mean, inspiring, exciting. Um, so where do we sit with it? I mean, well, you know, people are still listening to us. People still talk to us and discover us and um, sometimes lose their minds. When they, uh, the, um, the maitre d' at Gajan told her, almost fell over when somebody told him who I was. Well, that's comforting in a way. That. You know? Get a seat in the in the future. I can get a seat at the bar. Yeah, you can get like a, a cocktail. Yeah. Well, I can tell you. All right. So, having seen you uh, in 1980, so when you did your first U.S. tour, I saw you in San Francisco. That may be the last. How did you get in? I mean, twelve year olds getting into clubs. Yes, my mom took me, and I sat on her shoulders. Yeah. Actually. A roommate of ours bought me and my then, my first ex-husband, Courtney always head explodes when I say the I first know, ex-husband. Whenever you say that, I'm always like, right, there was a first ex-husband. But it was a green card marriage, but he was my husband, but he was a green card marriage. Um, and all the little punks were going, we were going to see the Buzzcocks. That was the big, you know, we had heard of you guys, but I, so yeah. we, you know, but the Buzzcocks, Buzzcocks, Buzzcocks. And my, our roommate who then killed himself by setting himself on fire. But that's a whole nother conversation. Um, I mean, you know, punk rock. Um, yeah. He bought the tickets for us and they were the extraordinary, like they were $7 or something insane, you know, outrageous. like, oh my, outrageous at the Temple Beautiful, where we usually got in for free at the Temple Beautiful, but it was not one of his shows. It wasn't one of Paul Rat's shows. Anyway, right. blah, 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 blah. We went to the show and... Like you guys came on and we were all like, oh, I guess we do have to sit through the band that we want to see, which was, but everybody was just like blown away. And if you were to ask me now, what part of the long time, I mean, the politics definitely though, Americans were oblivious to those kind of politics. We don't know anything about that stuff, but I really do think, and I'm coming from someone who's an R&B girl who grew up, you know, on R&B and stuff. It was, you guys had a groove. Punk rock was not a groove music there wasn't a i mean it was great but there wasn't a lot of undulating you could do to punk rock you know that's the stuff we collectively gathered about it wasn't just punk rock i mean we you know being english of course we all had reggae as a significant thing in our in our musical dna um we all had listened to and dug whether it was hendrix or can or funk parliament funkadelic and motown i mean you know James Brown, the meters. I mean, it's just, you heard these things and that was it. It was just, uh, you know, we did that. That's some of the things that drew us together. That and a band called Free, who were completely blues rock. And Paul Kossoff, the Paul Kossoff Free? Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Who had such a groove and yeah. so minimalist about it as well, which is another thing that we want to do. But I remember that show so well because that's one of the shows that is probably one of the top five or ten of all time because it was one of the hottest days of the year um it was hot yeah the guy djing the show was an old bbc dj johnny walker who's johnny walker 
I'd grown up listening to. And it's like, we're just sitting there before sound. I heard this voice. It's like, so and I said, fuck me, you're Johnny Walker. <laughs> it's like, great. So, and he always came to our shows back in those days as well. We, we became quite friendly, but you know, I mean, when I was uh, in high school doing summer jobs, I used to work on farms. And I remember this one summer when I was working on a pig farm, I'd sit having my sandwich for lunch. It was about the same time as he was uh, serializing Harry Nilsson's The Point on the radio, on Radio 1. So, yeah. <laughs> is he still alive? And I'm not saying that to be creepy. I mean, is he still around? Johnny Walker? Yeah. I have no idea. Obviously not Harry Nilsson. Um, I've yeah, no Harry Nilsson, I know. I've, yeah. Um, I have no idea. But that, Courtney, that, I have to give you a heads up. I'm I'm suddenly like set adrift on memory bliss here right, well, right you now. you know, I love it because whenever we <laughs> have these conversations. We, 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 I mean, that was the one where um, uh, Grill Marcus first saw us and confessed to walking out. Because he, he went to see the Buzzcocks, but said, I can't do it after that. I can't see anybody no, else. No, it was the, and then I saw you guys at the American Indian Center. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, oh God, that was the, that was in the beginning of 1980 when we toured with, with the album that had just come out on Warner's. That was a Ken Friedman show. That was a Ken Friedman. That's when I got thrown down the steps with Will Shatter. Ken threw us down the steps, but I digress. I find it amazing that you can remember all of these shows because I know I find you talking about working. you're talking about him. Yeah. Yes, he's just like, yes, that was his I'm thinking about all the shows I've been to with artists and all of the places and people are like, Don't you remember we were there? I'm like, I saw that. They're like, Yes, you were there. I'm like, I don't remember. <laughs> I just don't well, remember. I have to give it that you that you remembered the San Francisco show because that was your first US tour, right? I mean, that was yeah. the first time yeah, you the summer of summer of seventy nine. We we left like four or five days after we finished recording entertainment and came back four or five days before we had our first major UK tour on the back of entertainment. So, I mean, we, we never really stopped back then. No. Cause yeah, I saw that show and then I interviewed you guys for in, um, San Jose, I think. And what I, in a, in some club and what I remember so distinctly, I apologize, Courtney was that Dave Allen says to me, Oh, I just got over the chicken pox. And I'm like, get away from me because I've never had the chicken pox. And I just remember being like, great. I said, but I might get celebrity chicken pox. That would be really fucking cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. Post-punk chicken, but post-punk chicken pox. That would be good. You know, yeah. talk about some of the other founding members. You can actually, call it any name you like. Yeah. <laughs> you, you and the other founding members recently went out on the road, right? So how was that experience? What was the reception okay. like from the fans? Well, uh, two of the very original members went out. Then the first replacement joined us, basically. So John King and I, and we took Sarah Lee on bass and a new guitar player, which was obviously something we needed. Um, David Paho from Slint and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and God knows. I mean, he is a guitar god. Um, he was fantastic. And those were very big and difficult shoes to fill, but all I can say is Dave Parho has big feet. Right. So, nice. um, we had planned that, uh, John and I, because we really did most, well, John principally, but I was his lieutenant, uh, with the box set that came out on Matador. Um, that was a, a year and a half work that, uh, and we thought, right, we're going to go out on tour. And I mean, without getting into the depth of it, we, we had all fallen out uh, very significantly with Andy Gill, 
when John left the band in in 2012, he said to Andy, please go out, play, tour, do the, but don't go out as Gang of Four because it's just you. Call yourself the Andy Gill experience, anything, but it's not Gang of Four. It was one thing when there was just the two of them, okay, and I used to go and see them when they came into Boston because, you know, old friends, but Andrew then spent the next eight, seven or eight years touring as Gang of Four with three people, um, and it upset John and Andrew went further and further into a sort of Pravda-like uh, rewriting history about everybody's participation in the creation of the band and the development of the band. It was just sort of nasty. Um, so we thought, well, we're going to go and do it and maybe reclaim it a bit. And we'd actually found another guitar player, uh, a, a, a woman, um, from a band called Screaming Females down in uh, New Jersey or Philadelphia somewhere, Marissa, who was phenomenal, just great. Because, uh, you know, probably not very woke of me to say this, but John and I said, we want to find somebody really good, but we cannot have another old white guy in this band. We, You know, it's not the right thing. It would have been easy to pick anybody who once played with the Chili Peppers, for instance, but mm. just not it's not very interesting. That right. would never be a good move. Well, like, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, Marissa was fantastic, <laughs> but it sort of fell apart a bit because um, just for whatever reason, uh, and and Dave was unable to continue playing with us after. Well, then COVID hit, and then Andrew right. died, and the drama around that was extraordinary. Um, but it did actually clear the way for us to do it again, do it Come properly. back together, right. Well, and it was the first Gang of Four tour that wasn't really dominated by a mixture of sort of narcissism and alcoholism. And it was a lovely, lovely tour. We had what's known as a good bus. It was uh, the four of us, our soundman, Frank Gallagher, um, who's done, who did for years, the, you know, Talking Heads, B-52. I mean, he's done everybody. He's, he's really old, but damn good. Um, and Patrick Ferguson, a dear old friend of mine from a band called 5-8 in Athens, who I almost signed probably 25, 30 years ago, but stayed a good friend. He came out as our crew and um, uh, a, a woman doing our merch from uh, Asheville, North Carolina, who was fabulous. Um, so that the first five, four or five shows we did with that team in the bus and for, uh, the first shows we got somebody local, a friend to come and sing background. Uh, so we could do a couple of those songs like I Love a Man in Uniform and things like that. Um, and then when uh, we had uh, Mary from 10,000 Maniacs in the first show, that was lovely. Um, and then when we got to Boston, um, there was a young woman who had to audition for us back in January when we were rehearsing up here um, called Tess Burnham. My daughter. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. like, she, um, how, how unusual. Well, yeah, but she did. I mean, seriously had to audition. I mean, and I told her, look, I'd love you to do this, but you, you've got to earn it. And she, and she did. She, she was fabulous. She joined us during her spring break of her last year as um, a musical theatre major. Uh, and then <laughs> another old friend, uh, Dolette McDonald from Talking Heads and The Police and, oh, God. I mean, she was one of the 20 feet from stardom. I was going to say, I know that name. I know yeah, no, she's name. one of those, like, <laughs> tried and true yeah. session oh, singers. Yeah, yeah. She, she, she retired from singing, like, 15 or more years ago. She's in Stop Making Sense, Courtney. She's in. Mm -hmm. She's the one of the three women in, in mm -hmm. the dance, the singers in Stop Making Sense. She's, um, she's an old friend. 
Um, and uh, when I said, oh, she said, I want to come and see you. I don't know whether to come to New York or Atlanta because they live down in Georgia. And I said, well, come to both. I said, well, Tessie's going to be singing. She said, I want to come and sing. I will, <laughs> I will come to New York and I will stay with you till Nashville, which is when Tessie had to leave and go back to school, which she really didn't want to do. Oh, Dad, can I stay? No. You're, you're like, you're going back <laughs> to school. You're damn, we're going to finish, girl. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they were fabulous together. Tessie had such a masterclass singing with Dolette. And it was just glorious. It was a great bus. And then when they left in Nashville, we picked up uh, a band who sort of based in L.A., but sort of in Austin. Um, three women who joined us, uh, two of whom sang with us. And we just said to them, well, instead of renting a car and doing all that sort of thing, give us the money you're going to spend on a car. Come on the bus with us and we will make room for you by renting a trailer and that way everyone's in the same vehicle and we're safe right. and nobody's getting lost. Uh, and that worked really well. It was, it was a uh, fabulous. So we had a, um, a consistent opening act for that second half of the tour, which is good for everybody in the crew. Um, how was the audience reception? The- Sorry. How was the audience reception over the top from what I, <sighs> again, you know, sounds like I'm, it's all faint praise to myself, but fantastic. People say, oh, which was your favorite show? And it's like, I really can't tell because they were all stunning. Everybody. And again, like when we did the original reunion in 2005, there were young people and old people. Well, you you were playing because I saw those shows at the 2005 shows. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, That was the very original lineup with me and Dave and John and Andrew. Um, so, yeah, the shows were all good. When we left, we were on the verge of maybe breaking even. And, I mean, it was tense because the COVID thing. Was, luckily, we caught a bit of a lull in COVID. Lots of people came out. We had lots of rules about what we were going to do, which we just were not cavalier about. But, you know, nobody came on the bus. Nobody came backstage. But we actually went out after the show. We went to talk to people. We went to the merch table. And it people were just thrilled. It's like, Oh, thank you for coming here. And thanks for coming out. And, you know, we sold a ton of merch and sold out a lot of shows and came home with a bit of money, which was very nice. Cause had we not, it would have been disastrous because there was right. quite a lot of money at stake. How did you make the move into a and I mean, the, how did you go into a and because, you know, coming from your background, then you go into the belly of the beast for sure. I mean, once you're well, working in a and yeah. well, I mean, when Gang of Four signed to EMI instead of an indie label back in the day, we were going to the belly of the beast because that's where you can have most effect, I think. Um, So it wasn't – and when I was with the band, when we weren't working, I spent a lot of time, whether it was in London or New York, hanging out at the agent, hanging out at the record company, hanging out with the management because I just sort of – I wanted to listen and learn and see what was going on and all this sort of thing. Um, so it wasn't that far of a stretch. I, I moved to New York in the summer of 88. I'd been doing management, as I said earlier, in partnership with Jolyon, my brother. And uh, I was just spending a lot of time in New York going back and forward because Shriekback was signed to Ireland in the States. And I just I was tired of London. So I moved to New York and uh, spent a lot of time at Island Records. And within two months of being there, the uh, head of a offered me a job. 
doing A&R there and I just, oh, fabulous. I took it. <laughs> My first regular paycheck since getting 30 pounds a week when Gang of Four signed a record. Plus that's the dream. That's like the dream label. That's the label like. Well, it was. I mean, we, we were devastated when Gang of Four signed with EMI. Every major label was after us. Um, one of the original big bidding wars, except Ireland, which is the one we really the wanted. The one you really <laughs> wanted. Oh, so that, it was a sort of, okay, this is good. Um, and I was there for two years. I was there for Chris Blackwell's last year before he sold it to Polygram. And then the first year that it was owned by Polygram, that he was still there, but sort of as emeritus. That's um, a, that's actually a big to be. That is the dynamic shift of Island Records. Because yeah. those early years, I mean, the, the albums they put out, the singles they chose to put out, the artists they chose to sign. Everything. It was, it was really, it was interesting. It was downtown. It was New York. It was sexy. Some of it was hard. Some of it was, you know, all of the Grace Jones stuff. And then they had 4th and Broadway that went through there. And well, that's where, the off, that's where the label was at 4th and Broadway. You were 4th and Broadway, yeah. yeah. Of uh, Tower Records. Um, so it was a fabulous place to be. Um, and then I, uh, I'd signed an act... Um, called originally called Pleasure Head, and then they changed it to Pleasure Lords, and they were a great hard rock band with great songs. But, um, and the drummer was Paul Ferguson from Killing Joke, who is to this day remains one of the few drummers I'm really scared of. <laughs> so good. And the guitar player was John Carruthers, who played with Clock DBA, and I think spent some time with the Banshees as well. So yeah. it, was, it was it was a fun thing. We made a record, and then there was a big change in A and R. The guy who hired me left. And Denny Cordell came in, and he dropped my band before he, we right. the record was finished. But anyway, so that really was not. Cut a long story short, I then went to work for a new label called Imago, which was Terry Ellis, one of the founders of Christmas. That was another really good label. They had it was such for a while. interesting I mean, it, it, it artists was, on Imago. Yeah. yeah, there was some good artists. It they was, got shitted on too because didn't the, the, yeah. whoever was distributing them like kind of cut them off. And BMG, like, yeah. 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 There, there, were, there were problems. It was a lot of fun. Um, Kate Hyman was the head of ANR who hired me there and then fired me uh, 18, 19 months later. Um, they sent, <laughs> sent me out to LA to open and run the West Coast office, which I'd done. And I found this building and I oversaw everything and we were having a good time. And then Kate sort of hit a moment in her life where she wasn't very sure of things. Um, we, we can have this conversation offline. <laughs> yeah. no, but, well, it was all very, it was not happy or good at all. But, you know, I've since, fairly soon after that, I made a big point of making up with Kate because what's the point? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, um, it's a small that, world. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, just, you know, I'm not really nasty. Um, but what had happened 10 days before she came to LA and told me she didn't want me working there anymore. Um, an old friend, uh, Jim Swindell, who'd been head of sales, VP of sales at Ireland, um, had gone on. He, he then had gone on with Phil Q to Virgin to run that, um, but then had moved, had been given the job as uh, the president of Quest Records, Quincy Jones' label at Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. And uh, he called me and said, hey, I've got this new gig. It's great, but, I'm, you know, we've got some good people here, but Quincy really wants to expand and get in more into sort of rock music. So I'm looking for an A&R person. Do you, you got any ideas? So I went through all these ideas, and he went, oh, for Christ's sake, Hugo, I'm asking if you want to come and do it. <laughs> like, no, I'm sorry. Oh, look. I, As oh, you're suggesting I'm, everybody else under the sun, right, you're like. <laughs> I said, I'm flattered. Oh, my, that's lovely, Jim, but 
they've been so good to me at uh, Imago and you know <laughs> I, want, I don't want to flit around 10 days later I called him and said Jim is the job still available <laughs> so, right so I ended up at Quest for three years which was again great because I was back in the Warner Brothers fold where Gang of Four had been um, you know being Warner Brothers back then it was mostly all the same people which was mm-hmm. fabulous um, some really good people there um, I and I signed three, three or four acts, which were all really good, but nobody had a hit. We nearly had a couple. Um, and then from there, I went to EMI Music um, up on Sunset. I was there for two years. Um, and again, well, lots you know, of A&R get places that you were actually signed to. Well, yeah, artist. I know, yeah, I know. Um, but l- like it was back then, I mean, there was so much turnover all the time because, you know, as soon as a new boss came in, Let's bring their people in. Oh, every time. By the time that happened at EMI, I just I sort of got tired of it all. And my wife at the time, Tessie's mum, who'd been a publicist at Island and Virgin and Scotty Brothers, and she'd and she'd run her own thing. And she was at the time a VP of publicity for Capricorn, working for Phil Walden. Um, and we thought, well, and Phil said, well, come down to Atlanta because I'm moving up from wherever they were. Yeah. Um, and that fell apart. Um, <laughs> Phil Warden, <laughs> God. Um, <laughs> so it's like, I mean, we almost, we, we were about to put in an offer on a house uh, in four points or five points or whatever it's called. Five points, yeah, little five yeah. points. Mike Bone, who'd been the president of the island where Carol and I had been working when Polygram bought it, he was there and he called and said, have you put that off in the house yet? And I said, no. He said, don't. <laughs> <laughs> what? He said, Which no is a phone call that no one was like, what do you mean don't? It's like nothing good is coming behind that. No, have you yeah. found something better? <laughs> so, anyway, when that fell apart, we just, we'd already sold the house in LA, which mm-hmm. I, to this day, I, I love that. That was probably my favorite house, other than the one I'm in now. It was great. Um, so we just drove back to Massachusetts, where Carol's family was. Thinking, okay, we'll just winter here and then see what happens next. And you know what happened left. next was we just never left. And Wait a minute, she- who winters in Massachusetts? <laughs> You're supposed to, it's the other way around, dude. I know, well, yeah, they all, they all go down to Florida, you know. But, yeah, uh, I mean, the snowbird action is you leave the snow Yes, and then come you. back for the warm yes, weather. Yes. I just want to, no thank problem. You for mansplaining that to me. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, so we just stopped and I was doing management and Carol said, I'm, I'm sick of musicians. I've had enough of them. I'm going back to, she had been a dancer previously. She uh, trained and studied and got her BFA. And she went back to do Pilates and now is a lead. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. One of the leading practitioners of stop Pilates in the world. I mean, they, nice. they sent her to China to run huge. Wow. So yeah, no, she's really good. Um, and I, <laughs> I fell into teaching because I was. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> Emo, which was Boston's version of South by Southwest, um, and ran into an old friend I used to drink with down in Kent um, called John Lay, who had been uh, Squeeze's manager and Robin Hitchcock's manager. And it's like, hey, fucking hell, what are you doing here? I haven't seen you in years. He said, I married somebody, I live down in Plymouth, and I'm teaching at a college. So I picked myself up off the floor and said, what? <laughs> You're an idiot. He said, I am. But the biggest major, it was a, an, a, one calls an applied arts college. People were studying graphic design, photography, radio, um, 
um, music, music engineering, the music. So he said, yeah, there's a class they all take called Survey of the Music Industry. And he said, I just stand there telling stories and they love it. And I said, I could do that. Mm. He said, yes, you could. <laughs> so introduced me to the dean. And he said, lovely, I'll come in and teach a class. That was in 2000. Um, and it went really well, got great reviews. I said, I'd love to do more. He said, yeah, great. I said, okay, January what? He said, no, we only have our junks until, you know, in the fall, so come back next September. It's like, oh, God. So, so I did go back, and then that turned up with me, instead of teaching two classes, teaching four or five, because um, they somebody had left from the English department and the head of um, – what, uh, you know, that side of things was looking. And I went over and says, hello, um, I hear you need an English teacher. She said, yes. I said, well, I'm English and I'm a teacher. <laughs> Ergo, I can teach an English class. So, you know, she uh, laughed and said, okay. And that, I just went from there and I, they offered me a full-time job running the uh, uh, freshman seminar program. Wait a minute, are you like a real professor professor or a fake professor like me? No. You're a real professor professor? Yeah, that they said, and they offered me the full time gig and said, "Well, you've only got a bachelor's. We want you to get a master's." And I said, "I'll do that, but I want you to pay for it." <laughs> Wait a minute! Said, okay. I have a master's, and I'm still a fake professor. Well, let, let me. <laughs> you 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 may let me finish. All right, I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> um, so I got my master's, which was delayed because of the 2005 reunion, but I was running this whole sec, this whole uh, program for them, and it was going really well. Finished my master's, and then I was in. Um, and I was there for 16 years. I finished up as dean of students, but halfway through that, I'd started teaching as an adjunct here at Endicott College up on the North Shore above Boston. And um, I got a full-time job finally, uh, because I'm, my position does not require a PhD. It requires uh, a master's or more because I am the internship faculty, internship professor for the visual and performing arts school. Okay. So I teach classes, but my whole thing is around the internship program, which is a very significant and uh, successful part of Endicott College. So, yeah, I, I almost got a PhD at one point, and I was just like, I'm in my late fifties or early. You're like, am I trying to go back yeah. to school? <laughs> that really, much? <laughs> and being right. educated really never did anybody any good. Let's be honest. I mean, for fuck's sake, you know what I mean? Really? I mean, come on. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, it's. I, I would say that with the many really great teachers at this school, simply having a PhD is no determination of whether or not you're a good teacher. Yeah. Um, so, anyway. So that's how I ended up, and I, you know, I do have rank. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a. Here's my card. What am I? <laughs> I'm assistant professor of experiential learning. <laughs> Ain't you nothing? All right, yeah. whatever. I'm an you, adjunct. But, I'm just an adjunct. But <laughs> I asked you through yeah. all of that. The music never <laughs> leaves you, right? Isn't the desire? Do you still have that desire to play? Well, yeah. I mean, I I hadn't for years because I just I'd never considered myself a particularly good drummer. I not good at all the rudiments and I can't read I mean I can read music but I can't read drum scores and anything. it's just like oh. but um, I love it and we will continue with our current lineup um, good. Go start next summer we'll all be in England because John can't leave the country for a while not nothing legal he you know 
there's, he's got family stuff that he can't travel for a long time. So we'll go there. We'll base ourselves there for a couple of months. We'll write and record and rehearse and go off, do little guerrilla things, play a festival here, a couple of dates there, just like that, and take a time and have a nice summer because my new contract here allows me to work remotely during the summer. Nice. <laughs> Um, How come no one has done a version, a punk version yet of Can't Trust It for, for Liz Truss? I mean, I'm, I think you need to do that. It's <laughs> it's screaming out cover, don't you think? Don't. Oh, God. It's so depressing. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, a, like, it's depressing everywhere here. It's depressing. Yeah, it's depressing everywhere. Here's what you I just have ask, better chocolate. Ask you, because I ask Amy this all No, you all don't. Of, oh, actually, you do. Some better chocolate. I, yes. I ask Amy this all of the time, because I see so many different people coming up and trying to have punk museums and all these people coming up. But it always, to me, listen, I told Amy when I first met her, I was music director at my school station, so I knew certain names. Punk was not my my lane. I knew Wendy O. Williams. (laughs) I I discovered, I knew who the Slits were, and I absolutely... He toured with the Slits. And and I, for me, how I kind of discovered Nina Hagen was from Nina Hagen band. And that was punk to me, those first two albums that they put out before she went solo. So that was my punk extent. But when I see all of this stuff coming up now and all of these people, and I'm reading some of their synopsis or like, I said, Amy, something about the dead Kennedys the other day, because she was there from the beginning. And it just seems like some of the things I'm hearing people say, I'm like, I don't know a lot. I don't know a lot, but I but know... I know that that's not right. So what do you feel about everybody coming up and trying to tell these punk stories? And some of them seem like, not to diss VH1, but it seems very like a VH1, where are you now, punk edition, with oh my God, everybody going to Wikipedia for the information. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I keep up or get out of the way with technology, with social media and everything. It's just like... Whatever. I mean, there are some lovely stories out there. There's some, I mean, uh, three great books talking of Peter Hook. He wrote about the band and about the club and everything, a great trilogy of books he's written. I mean, some people write really well and interestingly, a lot of the stuff is awful. But what's really encouraging, certainly lately, uh, is how many of us are still doing this. Um, I've always been fair, not close, but friendly with them. Dave Wakeling from The Beat, or as you people say, The English Beat, who to this day tours four, five, six months of the year. His daughter is his tour manager. I mean, he's had hits, but then he keeps going and keeps going. And it's like, I said, you know, some of us got lucky and we got on the telly and we lasted three years, two years, five, six years. I said, you are the epitome of what we all dreamt about when we were 14, 15, watching Top of the Pops. You are a troubadour because you're still going out and playing and having a good time, making a living, you won. And there are others doing it, but he was the first one, and I really cottoned on to that whole dynamic. But, I mean, you know, the Pixies, even though they were latter-day, but they continue to make new music, put out new records and tour. My God, they tour well and big. Um, And um, Psychedelic Furs, I mean, still making new records, still fabulous on stage. I want to say they played here. They just played this year. Maybe was it over the summer at Pier 17? And I have a lot of friends who went to that show and loved it. It was great. They're so good. I mean, Richard is one of the great frontmen of all time. Oh, so good. And and a lovely man to boot. So, yeah, and a killing joke. (laughs) 
they still tour. They still do it. They are still a ferocious force. Um, so it's good. You know, it's like uh, it's not just old black guys playing the blues that can do it into their 60s and right. 70s or the Rolling Stones into their, what is it, 90s now? <laughs> but they've uh, aged well. Uh, yeah, well, they have, really. Well, to that end, I mean, New Order, they're not spring chickens. Pet Shop Boys are not spring chickens. Uh, right. The Bad Brains still play. They still tour. Bad Brains will get together every once in a yep. while and play. Yep. Um, you know, Bush Tetras still yeah. doing it, which is great. Bad Brains of Bush Tetras. That we did that. Uh, I don't know whether you probably weren't around at the time in New York. Was it New Year's Eve of eighty two or eighty three? Me, I came back to New York um, the day John Lennon died. Oh right, whenever that was, I was there. Exactly. Yeah, but not well, at that we, show. We played. Um, it was the Bush Tetras and Bad Brains opening for us at uh, Roseland. I think it was the first Holy rock. Shit bill at roseland and none of the promoters would touch it so we did it ourselves with ian copeland our agent and uh i mean it was it was outrageous it sold oversold by miles but what a great show i just remember the bad brains being really pissed off that they were lower down the bill than these women <laughs> well you know <laughs> yeah yeah i love that the still yeah. out there i yeah. love that the bad brains are still out there oh yeah no still it's pack fantastic. the club to see them it's great i love yep. the bad brains i love no, no, the bad really, brains. Really, it's it's great dead kennedys are touring again too the well Kennedy yes well, <laughs> we'll have that conversation offline. I have no problem with, I am not a fan of Biafra having been around when they were around uh -huh. and yes. having been on the road with them. Yeah. No, no, I get it. And I don't, you know, I, I'm sort of being semi facetious because there are a small number of people who said before we actually hit the road, it's not gang of four without Andy Gill. And I think I know that we shut them the fuck up. Because David Paho was so good, so good. Because when I told it, when I just said, look, we want you to know all the parts. We want you to play those songs. But it, you're David Paho. You are the Gang of Four guitar player now. And he played them his way in the spirit of Andy. I mean, he completely got it. He didn't try to be like him on stage, but nobody walked away disappointed. Everybody um, I know who saw the show said it it was like minds blown that it was like there was no thing of like oh here's a bunch of guys doing a reunion act as opposed to yeah. actually being a band it was the same vibe you know and so that's well i you know it's lovely to hear that because that's definitely how we felt at the end of it that we we succeeded and it's why we're going to keep going um, oh good no you oh, know God. when you have the right formula especially hard if you have to replace anybody in a band situation it's like look at who would have thought queen would work after freddie mercury right they've had guest mm -hmm. singers but then you get an adam lambert who is a generational talent oh and god his vocals work with that band so well that you're like fuck okay like this is actually yeah really yeah. viable you guys don't seem like you're just out here trying to be a nostalgia act you are really present in in this moment and it's great and 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 it you know that's it's like we know that people are desperate to hear new music it, you know we're not in the style track but we are playing old songs but a couple of new ones but we will write more we're not going to have a we've got an album coming we're not going to be silly it's the 21st century we'll write songs and we'll throw them out there and then when there's enough of them and we go out on tour again maybe we'll put them together on a big 
disc and sell it at the merch table. But we're not kidding ourselves that people are champing at the bit for new Gang of Four music. But we're going to make it because we want to and because this is a fabulous collection of people to be creative with. So Except you don't self. know that they don't want it until you give yeah, it Yeah, I was going to gonna say. That because it's if, like they're things... showing up, if they're showing up to the shows... Yeah, that doesn't mean like, especially the way music is distributed these days. You know what I mean? You yeah. can put it out, get it online. You can press yeah, yeah. maybe vinyl and sell them at your shows. If people are still coming to your shows and there was a reception to that, who's to say they don't want great new music? You well, know? yeah, I'm you know a small, de- a certain degree of false modesty, but <laughs> I mean, I hope people love it, and I hope well, I hope we make, and I believe we will make stuff that will be good. You know. And it keeps you having new stuff to sing on the road. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. It's always good to have new music to infuse into the show because I'm sure after a while it does get tired singing the same songs over and over and over again. You need to add some new blood into that just as musicians so that you're not bored yeah. doing the same thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Who are you, who are you listening to these days that you like? Just anybody? I love Harry Styles. Really? Who is he? I've never heard of him. Is he like some underground guy or something? I think he was in that group. I'm being for... Oh, my shitting Jesus. No, I think he was in... (laughs) What was that one? He's in that one B... One of those guys that runs from South Korea. Hugo, Hugo, Hugo. We haven't seen each other, but we do follow each other on social media. I am dripping in sarcasm right now. I know, but your face was like, man, you sold it. (laughs) You should be on stage. I'm Um, a teacher. I know how to lie in front of people. Absolutely. Um... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably the only straight white man over six who's seen him six times, <laughs> not on my own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it started with One Direction taking my daughter to the shows, and then uh, when he did his first solo tour of theaters, not huge stadiums, mm-hmm. which sold out in less than a second. Um, you know, her mum was trying this, and I was, you know, Toronto, New York, Boston, Chicago, everywhere we knew people. And it's like, ah, oh, everything sold. And then I went, wait a minute. Austin, Texas. He's playing at Austin City Limits. My friend runs it and books it. (laughs) I thought, I "I can't do this to him. I cannot reach out because everyone he knows with kids will be. Mm -hmm. So I thought, yeah, but their sale, they're an hour behind us. So I went there and I said, bang, and I got tickets. It was amazing. (laughs) Then then I called him and I said, Skip, Skippy, I said, so Harry Styles is playing at your thing. He said, yes. I said, (laughs) I've got tickets. And he whooped over the phone. He's like, you know, I just want you to know, I've got tickets. I'm, I said, the only thing I am asking for is I can be up in the sad dad's bar with you upstairs while my daughter and a friend are down on the floor. So that's what we did. And it was great. But t- because it was term time, Tessie was still at high school. So we got, <laughs> we got to do a visit at uh, Texas State down in San Antonio, which has the greatest music theater program. I mean, I would love for her to have been accepted there, but run by an English woman, she takes 18 or 22 students a year. It's it's that ferocious. But uh, it meant she could get time off high school to go and see Harry Styles in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. That was a really good blag that I did for her. But, yeah, so... 
I think Harry Styles is fantastic. I think he's. It's so he's interesting funny. how everybody across the board likes him, from punk rockers to black yep. folks to gay folks to straight folks. Yeah, yeah. He's hit um, that sweet spot of just he really everything. Good, he's everything. It's great music. songs. It's yeah, great showmanship. It's. Every, I, I a friend of mine got me a. T- I've told Courtney. His friend of mine got me a ticket. I forgot that she got me a ticket because I wasn't even going to try to ask. And right. then um, I got a concussion and I forgot about it. Oh, no. <laughs> but that's all right. I saw Pet Shop Boys. When we were first watching them on TV and everything, I just said to Tessie, okay, he's the one who's going to break out. She said, well, I'm not sure. I think it might be Nile. I said, no. He looks like a mixture of a young Mick Jagger meets Mickey Dolenz. Mm-hmm. I said, there's, a, there's an X factor. Yeah. Punnily enough, right there. And uh, I was right. Daddy was right. There you mm-hmm. go. There you go. Sign him. Oh, oops. He's already signed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who else? Uh, Anybody else other than the underground artists? You know, the obscure underground yeah, artists? I, I'm, I'm not great on obscure and underground. I no, guess. I was being facetious. I'm referring again to Harry Styles. Keep up. Ooh, keep ooh, up. Ooh, keep ooh, it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, God, I know you live in a backwater town and a backwater <laughs> state, and you can't keep up with us here, but you know. Bitch. Kind of sort of she is. <laughs> I listen to a lot of old stuff. I listen to um, Youth from uh, Killing Joke does every week on uh, Mixcloud. He does these great long mixes uh, of different songs and things. And I listen to that those a lot. Um, I'm now listening to REM three specific songs because there's a, a show in Athens and Atlanta in December put together by a whole bunch, you know, the Black Crows and a bunch of other people, Indigo Girls and Pylon and things doing uh, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Murmur. And they've asked me to oh, come wow. and play. Nice. Me to sing. I'm playing a song with the Indigo Girls. I'm playing a song with somebody I've not heard of. And I'm playing uh, their version of Academy Fight Song with uh, Pylon Reenactment Society. So oh, be- wow. Pylon was so good. God. Oh, and they, they yeah, they, they, well, it's now it's just Vanessa with other people, but they're a, an ongoing concern. They call themselves Pylon Reenactment Society. They opened for us in Atlanta in March on the tour, and oh, it was sweet. so good to have them. It's just dear friends. Just sweet. lovely. Court, so. what are you listening to this week? You have Courtney prefaces everything we should warn you with for some for reason. For some reason. <laughs> and I'm telling you right now, really, for some reason. I don't know if I was feeling extra homosexual this weekend. <laughs> I pulled out Donna Summer's Bad Girls album. Oh, uh, you were feeling and, extra homosexual and this weekend. that album all weekend, front to back, just twirling around my house. I yeah. don't know. I just went through a whole Donna Summer moment, and it just has been great. Haven't we all from time you know? to time? And you know what it is about her? It's that voice. It's like well, no yeah. one could see. It was such, she had such a... Beautiful, rich, full voice. When she sang softly, it was strong. When she sang big, it was strong. When she and no one has her, ever come strong. near her. No one has. No. You can see a lot of other singers in. No one is even like attempting what she did. First you know? time I really heard Donna Summer. I was probably in my year between high school and university. I was, I was working at Harvey Nichols, which is the sort of mini Harrods yep. mm-hmm. uh, on, in Knightsbridge. Because my dad was in the rag trade, so, and he sold to them all, and he so he got me a job there. And I was working in the record department mm-hmm. um, up on the third floor next to uh, ladies' underwear or something. And uh, the two women that ran it, who I didn't know at the time or I didn't cotton on, were a couple. 
all they played was fucking Donna Summer. And I was like, this is, you know, I'm, I'm punk rock. I'm, it's just, but being st- steeped in it, I suddenly realized this is great. Mm-hmm. I love this. So, you know, it, it, that's when I first got really exposed. I've been actually also listening to, um, I, I, I do this occasional radio show here on the college um, with a member of faculty who runs the radio department and um, a young sophomore woman who's a complete music fiend. And we bring songs. We bring three songs a show. And, we play. and the last, she's, 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 you know, she's 19 or something, hasn't heard a lot of stuff, and not particularly, oh, I haven't listened to a lot of female singers, so I've been uh, going through, I'm finding Dusty songs to oh. share, and um, uh, uh, who's the other one? I, oh, God, I, I love remember. Dusty Springfield. Oh, please. They oh. were playing the Springfields last night at Carbone, I went to Carbone for dinner, and literally they were playing the Springfields yep. in there last night. Yeah. I'm- her, that's another voice that honestly oh like, un- and never been matched just, never been I mean, matched no I'd one been, sounded like that no yeah. one. i mean a lot of a lot of people have done the song breakfast in bed and mm-hmm. hers is the best closely followed by a reggae version by lorna bennett oh that's a great version that version yeah, yeah. that's a really great i've been um I I what have I listening to? I've been really listening to a lot of old Mary J. Blige. I was listening to No More Drama a lot just because right. I like to go back. And I've been listening to a lot of replacements, and especially um, I have this really weird emotional connection to Don't Tell a Soul, which is not the cool album, only because I was pregnant. Um, I don't know why I always say with Lucian because I only have one kid, but I was <laughs> pregnant and. Um, we will inherit the earth. I felt like that was my song for motherhood, which of course is bullshit. Um, (laughs) And I interviewed, I just was like, just, I just, you know, and I had interviewed the replace. Did you ever work with the replacements at all or deal with them in any sort of way? Yeah. I didn't really really get them. It's like, I don't really get Radiohead and people look at me like I'm from Mars. I I understand the not getting Radiohead. I I don't understand the not getting. They've had a song or two. They've had a song or two. Explain to me why. I can explain it to you because everybody got into groupthink about it. Everybody got, I mean, there's Radiohead have done a couple things, but I will give a hundred dollars to, if I can find five people who actively listen to kid a, they do not, they say they do. Nobody listens to that record. They just like to drop it at cocktail party. Oh, yeah, I listen to Kid A. No, you don't. They probably don't even listen to it. You do not listen to Kid A. Just end the story. I will I think say. Replacements are, I think replacements are very American in a lot of ways. I think it's a kind of very kind of yeah. Midwesty American thing that, like, yeah. I will say that. I mean, it's one thing. It's one thing. I mean, we had reputation of being really heavy drinkers, but. For the most part, not falling over drunk on stage. Well, three of us yeah. wouldn't. But um. <laughs> you had a drum kit in front of you to stop you. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I, then I'd fall over backwards. You know. Oh yeah, good point. Um, you know, which is a long way to go when you're on a riser. Um, <laughs> the other, the other singer I've been, which I've always, well, since I discovered Judy Hensky, an old folk singer who has the most amazing voice, and I discovered her through reading books by uh he died last year um uh oh god now i'm gonna remember his name for uh, ver, ver, ver. andrew begins with a v andrew vax v-a-c-h-s-s the guy with the eye patch yeah the guy with the eye patch 
amazing books. And his main character listens to Judy Hensky while he's driving. And I just kept reading. I thought, I've got to find this. And you couldn't find anything. I mean, I'm Spotify now, but, you know, 15, 20, 20 odd years ago when I was first reading him, I couldn't find it anywhere. She was signed to A&M, um, A&M, I think. Um, but nothing was available. So, but eventually I found stuff. She's got a fantastic voice. Oh my God. <laughs> High flying bird is my favorite song. I'm going to play that on the radio station in a couple of weeks. Just get these youngsters to hear some good old stuff. You know what I mean? That's the <laughs> best part about that is having, giving young people like just a roadmap. Like, I know, you know, these five artists, but I need you to look at who influenced these five artists here. Well, no, right here. When I was teaching the music classes at that first college, um, the first class of every semester, I'd just walk in. I had it all set up. I wouldn't speak. I'd just stand there, and I'd play um, Papa Was a Rolling Stone because the first three minutes are just... I mean, no machine. And I just explained, you know, so at the end of it, I just said, that song makes the hair on my neck stand up. And your first assignment is to go out and write about the first song or artist that made you go, oh, that made you think you want to be here studying this. And I just, you know, you, you can't know where assignment. you're going. You, you can't know where you're going unless you know about where you've been. Um, so, you know, yeah. But, I always thought, you know, oh, my daughter's growing up, you know, I can't wait to introduce her to Bowie and I can't wait to introduce her to this. And it's like, I, I realized, no, she has to, she'll develop her own stuff. And I right. learned, I learned as much from, I mean, I really got back into listening to and understanding pop music with her because, yeah. I, you know, there were sort of six years I, was not allowed to control the car radio. So <laughs> I heard a lot of stuff I otherwise wouldn't have done. Um, so that was really good. Yeah. I mean, it was the same. I remember when Lucian was little, I remember once walking into his room, he's blasting some music, some, you know, rap, the rap. And I said something like, Oh, who's this? And he turns to me and goes, uh, it's your job to know who it is. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. So you see, it comes naturally, Hugo. We can't yeah. help it. Uh, it's a New York thing. It comes naturally. Um, is there anything you feel like, uh, promoting? Is there anything like your radio show you want us to, to no, it's, it's, it's a campus show. I mean, I, I mean, uh, the REM murmur 40th anniversary is got, I mean, Athens is sold out already. I don't know about Atlanta, but that should be a lot of fun. I don't know. Um, uh, what I would like to promote. How about people, the box set? Is it still available? Sold out in a month. Wow. <laughs> I wish we'd made more. Again. Wow. Okay, the, you being that modest, I'm like, you're like, I don't know, but they want something new from us. I'm like, oh, do you have the box set? Well, that kind of sold out in a yeah. month. How was the shows? Well, you know. Yeah, it was okay. We kind of sold out a bunch of them. And yeah, then, like, we could sell out all, right. all the merch and things. I mean, but I don't know if anybody than... would actually, you know, want something new. I was like, I think they want what you're giving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I get that. It's scary thinking about new music when you've been around for a really long time and, and the legacy hey of things. <laughs> hey but, <now. laughs> but it seems like... He was 12 when I saw them in Gang of Four, too. It was like he was the Harley Flanagan of post-punk. <laughs> He's just up there <laughs> drumming <laughs> away. That, but I love that. That makes me so happy. As someone who worked in the music industry for a really long time, I think that 
the hardest part for me was seeing the people who really wanted it and then didn't get it in certain ways. And they've stopped even making music. They've gone on. Like, the experience really took them out. And then they've just gone on to just have other careers. And they've left that thing that they love behind. So I always feel like if you are blessed enough to be able to have decades in it, it's like... Don't ever make yourself a nostalgia act because people will always pay and want to hear the old things. I'm like, it's okay to be like, we're still alive. We're still creating because I don't ever feel yeah, like that right. part dies, you know? And it's like, you should no. be able to say, it, it I want to create. Dormant. It yeah. can go dormant for a while, you know, yeah. because, you know, we all go through different stages. I mean, you know, whether you're having kids or moved away or whatever, or it, it, yeah, I'm again, I'll, I'll go back to, I'm very fortunate that I'm, still really good friends and love john and sarah and now with david in 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 the fold it's great and i love dave allen too he's still a dear friend um he's just not playing with us anymore well that means um, amy the next time they're here in new york we have to go to the show oh yeah well we you know i didn't i didn't go i think parker asked me if i wanted to go um our mutual friend parker and yeah. uh i think that was at the height of like scary monster covid stuff i was not well, you know when, when, yeah leading up to it we didn't know but then it cleared up by which time it had yeah started. no parker yeah. um, another you know another teacher yeah like I know. like like cindy from uh, bush Tetras, teacher in the new york system um yeah no certain it is of the many regrets i have one of them was definitely when certain general were starting um marcy and parker but marcy first said would you produce our first record? And I was such an idiot because I said, oh, no, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I'm good enough. And I was such an idiot because I should have done. But I just didn't have that self-confidence. I mean, Andy Gill had a good career as a uh, producer. Um, and I thought, well, you know, things would have changed. But I wish, even if I'd only ever done that one, because I thought they were really good. As I told you earlier, Marcy is one of my great loves to this day. Um. So yeah, whatever. <laughs> Never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And you on know, that, climb every other mountain, Hugo. That okay? is the yeah. climbing perfect, every <laughs> perfect yeah. place to leave it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's the perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for coming on, Hugo. And you guys, you know well, what it is. Well, I'm gonna let you finish. Me. Oh, first of all, people, if you don't know Gang of Four. You're all walking around with computers in your pocket. And everybody <laughs> seems to listen to their music from tech companies that tell us that they're music companies. So go to your whichever service you use, go into that search bar, type in Gang of Four, and get your whole life. And because I know you're all on YouTube and Pornhub, when you're taking a break from the Pornhub, go to YouTube and type in Gang of Four and see them where you can actually visually well, see Well, except that if Gang of Four comes up on Pornhub, that's a Baby, whole other conversation. Please type it in with just your left hand. If right, you just <laughs> your left hand. So you know what it is. Thank you for listening. You're hearing us on the Pantheon Podcast Network, where there are over 75 fabulous and fascinating music shows, including us, the fuckery of us. Thank you. And you know the deal. Leave us a message on our Facebook. I'm going to let you finish all one word. Or on Twitter at FinishIma. I still fucking hate that word. Amy doesn't mind us so much anymore. I meditate. You know, yeah, I let you know what I'm go. saying? She does yoga and shit. You <laughs> I know, let, it works I for let her. things go. And you know the deal. Leave, tell a friend. We'll be back next week. 
Remember to listen next week. We love you, and we'll see you next week. Until next week. Bye. Go Yankees. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding your motorcycle with your buddies on the open road. It's a potent cocktail of thrills, laughter, and pure adrenaline. A feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, sound effects guy. I'm real proud of you, son. Wow, that was terrible. Our apologies for even trying. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.